Well, last uh, week's reading was 12 verses and I preached for 25 minutes. That was 48 verses. I'll let you do the maths. (laughs) Psalm 106 uh, celebrates God's grace, doesn't it? Throughout Israel's very sinful history. So today, I want to address the topic of how we deal, how we respond to sin in our lives. What do, we, what do we do? How, how do we respond to that? Uh, like the Israelites in Psalm 106, we've all got a fair catalogue of sin built up over the years. And it separates us from God. It stands there between us and God like an immovable, unscalable wall. And how we respond to our sin matters Because like the Israelites, each of us is vulnerable to dealing with sin in ungodly, unhealthy, damaging ways. So let's ask God to help us as we dive into this passage. Loving Heavenly Father, as we look at this psalm, please help us to learn how to identify and deal with our sin in the right way, your way. Help us all to experience the deep and lasting joy of your forgiveness and the freedom that it brings to our thirsty hearts. Help us to recognize the various ungodly ways we sometimes use to deal with our sin and to turn from those ways and to delight in your solution for our sin. We ask this in Jesus, our Saviour's name. Amen. Well, please keep your Bibles open. Obviously, I'm not going to have time to deal in great detail with every verse. It's a moment for a collective sigh of relief. (laughs) But the first thing to notice about Psalm 106 is the start and the finish. It has matching bookends, if you like, like those ones that perhaps you remember seeing on your grandma's shelf. You know, half an elephant over here, then a whole stack of... I even found a picture, look at that. Half an elephant here, all the books, and then a a trunk and head of the elephant over the other end. Um, Verses 1 to 5, if you have a look at it, verses 1 to 5 is a mix of praise to God for his goodness and blessing and then asking God to remember and save. Look at all the speaking words at the start. Praise, give thanks, proclaim, declare. And then in verse 4, remember me, Lord, when you show favour to your people. Come to my aid when you save them. And if you jump right to the end, flip over the page, uh, verses 47 to 48... The twin themes are there again, but they're reversed. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say... You thought Billy Graham invented that. (laughs) It actually goes back to Deuteronomy 27, if you want to have a look at it. Uh, The great tragedy about this psalm, though, is that the reason he's still asking for salvation at the end is because everything between those bookends is a blow-by-blow account of Israel's repeated sinfulness. 
They're trapped in a cycle of sin. You can see it in verses 6 to 11. Let's just have a look through there for a sec. Verse 6, they've sinned. He's acknowledging that they have sinned. Verse 7, they're caught in some kind of crisis in this instance. Uh, it's their slaves in Egypt. Often it was because of God's judgment on their sin. And then verse 8, God saves, saves them. Verses 9 to 11 give some more details there. But note that they did nothing to deserve it. Nothing. He saved them purely because of his unfailing love. Then verse 12, oh, they're happy and they praise him. Oh, he just saved them. <laughs> and they enjoy peace for well, a little while. And then it goes round again. Look at verse 13. But they soon forgot. Round and round and round. They just launch headlong into sin again. And at the time of writing this psalm, God's people are in crisis Again, they're exiles scattered in a foreign country outside the promised land because of their repeated rebellion against God. And there they are waiting, hoping, longing to be rescued, to be forgiven and gathered once more as God's people in God's place under God's Loving rule and blessing. That's their prayer and hope expressed in this psalm. And it's fascinating because it's so similar to the way the New Testament writers portray Christians. Peter begins his first letter like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces. James began his letter in a similar way. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Followers of Jesus are portrayed as exiles. Friends, this world is not our home. We're scattered all over the planet, aren't we? Waiting to be gathered by God, to our promised land, our heavenly home, our inheritance with him, God's people, in God's place, under God's loving rule and blessing. So as we read Psalm Psalm 106, their struggle with sin is very much our struggle and their hope is our hope. So let's do it like a super quick flyover of their sins and we'll see just how similar we are. Uh, and then we're going to look at, uh, at God's answer to this cry for help. Ready for it? 48 verses, here goes. Uh, uh, in fact, let's pick it up at verse 7 uh, through to 15. Those verses, they're all about forgetfulness and unbelief. God did so many mighty miracles. You can read it back in the chapters of Exodus, first 19 chapters, um, when he saved them from slavery in Egypt. But they quickly forgot his power. They forgot his promises. And as soon as they're faced with a new obstacle, they thought, God can't do it. That'll never happen. 
Well, don't we do the same? We easily forget the many good things that God has done for us in our lives. We forget to, to stop. Or sometimes we just refuse to stop and say, thank you. Thank you, God. And like the Israelites, we grumble and we doubt his promises too. Let me just pick one. Jesus says, I will be with you always. But the first sign of trouble or hardship, and we think he's left us. I'm all alone. He doesn't care. Or is it just me? In verses 16 to 18, some, this is an interesting one. Verse 16 to 18, some people were jealous of God's work in and through Moses and Aaron. Oh, yeah, I don't see that. I couldn't help it. I just love that picture. Uh, that's not Moses and Aaron, by the way. I just realised I just realized how inappropriate that is. I'm sorry. I, I just saw that and I just love the picture. Um, they were jealous of Moses. Oh, okay, let's just have a laugh there. Um, it was this same sin of envy uh, that led the religious leaders to want Jesus' death. Exactly the same thing. Jealous of, of what, what they could see God doing in, in and through Jesus. And that same kind of jealousy is alive and well today. Have you ever felt jealous of the gifts God has given to someone else? Have you ever felt jealous of, of someone else's success in work or family or church? Wishing you had the opportunities or the accolades that they've received. That's the 10th commandment, isn't it? Do not covet. Don't be jealous of those around us. Verses 19 to 23 describe that terrible moment when they made the golden calf and they worshipped it instead of God. Now, I just, it's so hard for us to get our minds around this. Gold was precious. Okay, I get that. Gold was precious. And a calf or a bull, as it says there, um, re represented strength and productivity. Now, personally, I don't have any golden calves at home. Certainly don't bow down to them uh, if we did. But, but what things are we in danger of making more precious than God in our lives? What do we give our time and our resources and our productivity to instead of God and his honour and the growth of his kingdom? Often it's good things that we make God things. Here's what our Bible study group in a space of 10 seconds came up with. Well, money, holidays, career, possessions, TV, iPad, mobile phone, sport. I mean, you, you could go on and on, couldn't you? Make your own list. If that, those ones don't fit, other things will. Um, what things are we tempted to replace God with as king of our hearts? Think for a moment. When you're really angry, what do you turn to? When you're really distressed about something, what's your... What's your way of coping? Do you turn to God? Or like so many, do you, do you actually self-medicate? You know, bury the pain in unnecessary shopping or alcohol or, or excessive chocolate and coffee? 
and other sweet things. Perhaps in physical fitness. Screen time. Not necessarily, obviously, sinful things like pornography. Just, you know, soaking up hours, simply cruising. YouTube, Facebook, perhaps shopping online. Simply to ease the pain of the disappointments and dissatisfactions we feel in life. Those kind of moments tend to highlight what we're really trusting in. Is it God or is it other things? What about when something really wonderful happens, when you've got really good news? Listen to how you share it. Take note of your own words. Where do you give credit? What or, what or who do you value most in the retelling? Have any good things become God things in our hearts? Idols taking God's place? Verses 24 to 27, there's more grumbling and unbelief. The Israelites treated God's commands like a menu. I'll have a bit of this and a bit of that. None of that. And, oh, I'm allergic to that. Definitely not. Friends, we cannot treat God like a menu. A list of options. We cannot call God Lord if we treat him that way. The very title Lord means he's in charge and we willingly submit fully to his plan. Verses 28 to 31, this is just a national disaster. They've committed spiritual adultery by leaving God for the gods, the idols of the nations around them. Instead of being light in the darkness, their foolish hearts were darkened. Instead of overcoming evil with good, they were overcome by evil. Now, I think this is a real challenge for us today. Social commentators say Australian society has moved like this. We were once shaped strongly by Christian values. Not everyone was a Christian, but we certainly shaped strongly by Christian values. You can even see it in the architecture, uh, the early towns, what was in the centre of the town, top of the hill, church. <clears throat> then we took God for granted and nominal- nominalism took over. And the church, it's out in the suburbs now. It's kind of out in the, God's out in the suburbs of our heart, if you like, as well. And then we transitioned to a post-Christian pluralism. Lots of God ideas, where, where people have little or no real knowledge of the Christian faith. And there's spiritual confusion. People believe whatever they want to believe. Notice how our new suburbs have no church or, or, or perhaps a, a multi-faith venue or something like that. But we've moved further. Australia is fast becoming an anti-Christian pagan culture where the church and the gospel are actively opposed and persecuted because they're seen as a threat to the lifestyle of the majority. 
I see this increasingly in social media. Christian bloggers get the angry face (laughs) and lots of hate speech in the comments. How are you going to hold on to your faith? How are you going to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus if our country, and we pray that it doesn't, but if our country continues to move away from God and actively oppose you if you follow Jesus? Of course, the easy response is just go quiet about Jesus and simply blend in, camouflage. Or let go altogether and just embrace what the majority around us are embracing. Do what they're doing, talk how they talk and value what they value. The psalm continues story after story of Israel's failure to trust and follow God. 32 to 33, just quickly. The people's sin actually leads Moses, their leader, to sin as well. Seen that happen in churches. Verses 34 through to 39 describe how the Israelites partially obeyed God, but also turned a blind eye to some sin. They were aware of it. They knew exactly what was going on. It reminds me of Jesus' uh, you know, parable of the, the four soils. And it's the seed among thorns. And the thorns end up growing up and choking the plant. And so in verses 40 to 42, God is rightly angry at his people. Sin has consequences. Verse 43 sums it up. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion and they wasted away in their sin. God says, this is what's right and healthy for you. And they thought, nah, this looks more tasty. And the result was they were spiritually starved, malnourished. And they wasted away in their sin. And so do we. But because of God, there's hope. We see his patience and his undeserved mercy as he rescues them again and again and again and again and again. See verse 45. For their sake, he remembered his covenant And out of his great love, he relented. He was ready to wipe them out, but he he relented. They deserve punishment, but he showed mercy instead. And the basis of his mercy was not their goodness, but his goodness. Not their faithfulness, they had none, but his faithfulness. His faithfulness to his own promises to them. You see, Israel's history goes back to one man, Abraham. God chose Abraham and made a covenant with him. He promised to make his name great 
by making his descendants into a whole nation of people, giving them a land of their own and blessing them. But that same covenant that he made with Abraham reminded them that Israel's future also leads to one man. God promised that a descendant of Abraham would be the one through whom God would bless all nations on earth. As we read Psalm 106, it's pretty easy to see that, that their sins are our sins and their hope is our hope. We call and cry to the same God. But there's a huge difference between the Israelites in Psalm 106 and us. We know who that descendant of Abraham is. The New Testament begins with these words. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, very first words of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. That's already ringing bells, right? The Messiah. The descendant of David. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. The descendant of Abraham. Ching, ching. This is the one. The, the reading that was read earlier from Luke chapter 1, Zechariah's prayer begins by saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. This is that moment in history when God's come to save his people. In verse 47, the psalmist cries out, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And in the short term, God, God answered that prayer by bringing them back from exile to geographical Israel. But the cycle of sin just kept on going round, round, round. God's final answer to this prayer was by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And so how exactly does Jesus... Do it. How does he save us? Well, there's two verses in Psalm 106 that show us the answer. Verse 23. As a situation where God said he would destroy his people. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them? This refers to a, uh, an incident in Exodus 32 where God was so angry at his people's sin rightly angry, that he was going to just wipe them out. Start again with Moses. But Moses stood in the, in the breach. In other words, he stood in between the people and the punishment that God was rightly about to deliver. And they were saved. Similar thing happens in verse 30, where Phinehas, we don't hear much about Phinehas, good bloke, uh, but he stood up and intervened and the plague was stopped. On the cross, Jesus, God's chosen one, stood in the breach. In other words, he stood between us and the punishment from God that we deserve for our sins. So that we could be saved. He literally gave his life so that we could have ours. It's only by faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection, that God saves people from the ultimate crisis of a broken relationship with him, remaining under his judgment for eternity. 
I began by asking how we deal with our sin. Of course, the right way is by confessing our sin to God. That's what verse 6, the beginning of this whole account of Israel's failings, that's what verse 6 does so helpfully for us. Confess our sin to God. And now with the New Testament perspective, we know confess our sin to God and trust in his rescue, his chosen one. Trust in Jesus and follow Jesus. But I think there are three really dangerous and damaging unbiblical ways of dealing with sin that Psalm 106 exposes. And we do well to avoid them. They all start with D. I just thought I'd do that to make it easy for us to remember. Number one, denying the seriousness of sin. If sin wasn't so serious, why was God so mad at his own people? He's ready to wipe them out. Why did Jesus give his life? Denying the seriousness of sin, saying it doesn't matter, that's a deadly way to deal with sin. We need to be honest with God and confess it to him. Secondly, distracting ourselves. Distracting ourselves with the ways of the world around us. Now, I've already explored that in a bit of detail. God calls us to, to trust and follow Jesus instead. Third one, doubting God's power to save us. Doubting God's power to save us. Even though God had saved them many, many times in the past, the Israelites failed to trust that God could save them in the present. We do the same. Even though God promises to forgive us, remove our guilt and cleanse our hearts, many Christians struggle with doubt and lack of assurance and live with ongoing guilt and condemnation in their hearts. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, our salvation rests on God's promises and God's power, not on our performance. By his death and resurrection, Jesus completely destroyed the power and the penalty of sin. So friends, trust him and delight in the freedom that brings to our hearts and minds. Psalm 106 It celebrates God's grace throughout Israel's very sinful history. And here today we too can celebrate God's grace in the salvation God has won for us through Jesus. The ultimate answer to the cry, the prayer of this psalm. Jesus is God's chosen one who stood in the breach as saviour of all. Amen.